Well, we started uh, last week looking at this section of uh, Acts and seeing in it the marks of a spirit-filled church. Uh, let me remind you, and if you're a visitor this evening, let me tell you that uh, what we have in the book of Acts, of course, is part two of one volume, the book of Luke, part two, in which Luke tells us in the beginning of the book that what he's describing in this book are the things that the Lord Jesus are, is continuing to do or did continue to do during the time of the apostles. In other words, as we come to the book of Acts, it's very easy, I think, to come to it looking for a program that if we adopt the program which they were using then and apply it to our church today or churches today, we will have a similar kind of effect. In other words, we fail to see the book of Acts in its biblical, theological place. It has a place in history. It, it is describing the mighty works of the ascended and exalted Lord Jesus. That's how it is described at the very beginning. That's why at the beginning of this book, for example, we have this description of the ascension of Christ, Him taking this place of all power, and His appointment of the apostles as His witnesses to the world of what He has said and done. We've seen the pains taken to appoint the last of the twelve, the twelve who were appointed to be the foundation of a new Israel. And then in chapter 2, we have seen the Spirit fall in fulfillment of God's Word. We've seen a reversal of uh, Babel, where the languages of the, the world were, uh, were created and chaos ensued. And now there's unity as together, speaking the, the same message of the gospel, people from all over the place are hearing in their own language and also in their own dialect the wonderful works of God. That's the kind of background to the book. So when we come to this book, then we're not looking at it as a kind of template for us to apply to ourselves in general, but rather as a witness to what happened by the power of the Spirit and to see that what we have here is a demonstration of the heavenly exaltation of Christ here is the final part of our, our Lord's earthly ministry as He unleashes His Spirit on the church and as He is demonstrated to be Israel's Messiah, the church's head, and the world's Lord. So that's where this whole incident is found in the, in the overarching story of the Bible. And the effects of it, the effects of it are this great multiplication of the numbers of believers from 12 to 120 to over 3,000 people believing. It's an amazing work of God. It's a surprising work of God, a remarkable work of God. And every revival since then has looked back to this and has compared itself usually negatively with what happened back then. So we look at the effect of the sermon and the languages and the unusual disturbances on the first Pentecost, and we see this remarkable movement of conversion. It's described in verse 41. And the first effect of it on the people is that they, are now, they carry a common identity. They are baptized. They're marked as belonging to Jesus Christ. They're mar marked by baptism as those who've been brought into the new Israel of God. So then we move on then to verse 42, and what we began to look at last time, they devoted themselves to something. 
That is, they gave their time and their energy, their attention, spontaneously to several interests. They began to focus, we're told, on the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, or the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. They did all these things together as the new Israel of God. Now, we started looking at that la this last week, and we got no further than this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So we got to apostles. Now we're going to move a bit further and perhaps a bit faster this week and look at the rest of verse 42, uh, because verse 42 is distinguished from the rest of this little section by the fact, by, by the overuse of the definite article uh, uh, that suggests that what this is meant to be is an overarching summary of the things which characterized these new believers, especially when they were together. The, these four things, the teaching, uh, the fellowship, the supper, and the prayers, these four elements of their corporate life together. I said we, last week we got no further than to say the kind of teaching that happens among Christians is apostolic teaching. That's, I take that as read, and I'm not going to repeat what I said last time. But there is no teaching that is Christian teaching that is not apostolic teaching. They're the ones who had the special anointing of the Spirit to tell us what they saw and heard and to report that to us. And that report, fortunately for us, doesn't need to come to us by word of mouth. It's been written down. It is in our New Testament as we know it. But it is interesting, isn't it, as we come this evening to look at the first mark of the church, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching that right at the very heart of this very Holy Spirit-heavy moment, this very spiritual occasion, Pentecost, the first priority of these new believers is to give themselves to teaching. That is, they became dependent on the apostolic word. That's important because very often today I think we think that anything spiritual has to be other than intellectual or mental or demanding of reason or thought, that it is very feelings-centered, very subjective. But they began with teaching. Dorothy Sayers, a uh, uh, great author of the past, writes about this focus on dogma or doctrine in the Bible, and, and she says this in one of her writings, we're, we're constantly assured that the churches are empty because preachers insist too much on doctrine. Dull dogma, as people call it. The fact is the precise opposite. It is the neglect of dogma that makes for dullness. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. And the dogma is the drama. This is the dogma we find so dull. This terrifying drama which God, in which God is the victim and the hero. If this is dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? The people who hanged Christ never, to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently pared the claws of the Lion of Judah, certifying him meek and mild, and recommended him 
as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. I don't know if you agree with that or not. I think she puts her finger on the issue. Truth is not dull. If it's true, it's not dull. Truth is not boring. And we're reading about a dramatic experience here. And my worry is that if, if we think this is reproducible today, and that, that any of the things that are meant to be a reproduction of this are themselves a bit tedious, they are a bit boring, they are a bit repetitive, frankly, they don't measure up to what I'm told happened here at Pentecost. It is utterly unique. In the Bible, it's unique. And in the Bible, it's unrepeatable. And it's, it, is, it stands alongside the resurrection and the death and the life and ministry and the birth of the Lord Jesus. And the only reason, as we saw last time, that people took the apostles seriously was that they were doing, as we read out together in verse 43, all came upon people because many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. They, people took note of these apostles that they were doing precisely the kind of things Jesus did. And because he, they were doing the kind of things Jesus did, later on we're told people took note of them that they had been with Jesus. And it was infectious. That's why they listened to the apostles. And the apostles' teaching becomes the foundation upon which the church is built. It is objective truth. What they said about Jesus was true. What they said about, and, the, and you can imagine, these people, many of them were told earlier on in chapter 2, had come from all over the then known world to Jerusalem. And they want to hear about what? They want to hear about this figure that these men knew firsthand. They want to know precisely what Jesus meant. They want to hear teased out the applications and implications of the stuff that Jesus had taught them. This is absolutely fundamental stuff. Now we have in our Bible, we have in our New Testament, the apostolic word. That's why later on in the Bible, of course, it's called a deposit that has to be passed on, secure to the next generation. That's why teachers are appointed in the church and they're taught that they must not deviate from the form, the shape. The Greek word is the morphe, the, the form of sound words, the words they've received. They have not to deviate from those words, but they have to pass them on word for word, thought for thought, doctrine for doctrine to those who they are teaching in Jesus' name. It's no accident we've been seeing that in the economy of God and the providence of God, Luke's book has been divided into two parts and the Gospel of John has been inserted in between. That, that's not a mistake. In the providence of God, there's stuff in John that you need to read before you read Acts that, that amplifies what, Jesus, what Luke has given us in his Gospel, volume 1 of his book. And in John chapter 17, the Lord Jesus is defining his apostles. He's talking about them. He prays for those the Father has given him out of the world. They were the fathers. The Father has given them to him. And Jesus prays for them that they would be kept safe. Um, not one of them has been lost except the one, the son of destruction, Judas Iscariot. But Jesus prays for them. And then he says, sanctify them. That is, set them apart and distinguish them by what? By the truth. Your word is truth. And so what we understand from Jesus is 
Now, when we come to the apostles' teaching, we are hearing truth. Now, that leads me to then to move on and to say that what we have here in Acts 2, verse 42, in this first clause, is the reason why in Christianity from its earliest days, teaching is central to the life of the church. We need to be taught. We need doctrine. We need taught what the Bible means. Not simply to have its stories rehearsed, but why the story is there, what the story is teaching, what is going on in the story. Because what we have in the Bible is not only the story, but we have the Bible's explanation of the story. If you just looked on at events, you might take one, make one conclusion and another would take another conclusion, but the Bible helps us by giving us the conclusions we are to draw from the stories that we read. That's what doctrine is. It's God's explanation of what he's doing in the world. It's as simple as that. And we Christians need teaching if we are to grow. You see these early Christians on Pentecost with this great abandonment, this great power of the Spirit upon them did not see their experience of the Spirit as an excuse to despise the intellect or disdain doctrine or dispense with instruction. Because Christians need teaching if they're to grow. That's why the teaching of the Word of God is often likened to bread, to food, that, to something we need if we're going to survive, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk that you may grow up with. It. And we need, we need teaching to help us understand what's going on in our lives, to, to understand what's going on in the world, to understand the, the crises that often invade our lives, the challenges that come up in our lives, the, the burdens that sometimes are laid upon us, we don't understand these unless we understand this truth. The teaching helps us to be holy because Jesus told his disciples that they were clean through the word that he had given to them. Martin Luther said, God's word will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from God's word. And we need teaching if we're going to have anything to say. If someone asks you, why are you a Christian? Are you simply going to ask, I'm a Christian because I, I believe in God? They say, well, I believe in Santa Claus. Well, I believe in God. Well, why do you believe in God? You need something to say. Who gives you something to say? It's the Bible gives you something to say. It puts words in your mouth. It gives you something to witness to. It points you to these people there and then at this point in history who had this amazing encounter with a real person you look back at these objective realities of history, and that's your witness. You say to someone, I believe this so much that I'm prepared to make this experiment with you. You take the story of the resurrection. You investigate the story of the resurrection for yourself. I'm so confident that if you read the story of the resurrection in the Bible, you will discover there are many infallible proofs for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are you that confident in what God has done? Well, it's the Bible that builds up your confidence. The more you read it, the more confident you are in it. The Bible gives us something to say. And teaching makes God more familiar to us. People who say they don't want teaching are actually saying, I don't want to know any more of God than I know. And sometimes that, what that means is you know God as well as you know Nicole Kidman. Sorry that she came into my mind. 
I nearly ran her down. I nearly, I nearly crashed into her. She was crossing the road in Richmond because they were doing some, making some movies there. And Nicole was there. And it made my day. But I, I didn't hit her. I stopped in time and she crossed the road. Uh, but we, we know these celebrities. We, we, we know them from a distance. We know this and that about them. Do you know some of us only know God as well as we know Nicole Kidman? What we need teaching for is so that we know God better. This is how he's introduced himself to us. He, he tells us more and more and more. The more you dig into the Bible, the more you discover God becomes more familiar. It's his handbook on himself. These are his letters of introduction. And that's why from the very earliest part times of the church, teaching was absolutely vital. It was vital for those who were appointed to lead the church. They were set apart for the business of prayer and the ministry of the Word. So, teaching is the first thing you notice as this church comes together. And then the second thing, the second thing, and before, maybe before I leave that, I need to say one or two other things here, because last week there was a question raised after the service that, that I thought was a good question, and it was a question of whether uh, we come to the church believing that God will speak directly to us. Well, I hope you, I hope you do. Because as long as I'm teaching from the Bible, God is speaking directly to you. Do you believe that? I believe that. If the Spirit does not work in us the way He worked on the apostles then, can I say that He speaks directly to me? Yes, in this sense. By way of analogy, by way of analogy, in a way that's analogous to the way He worked on them, He works in me. Let me remind you, let me explain what I mean here. What did the Holy Spirit do with the apostles? If you read John's Gospel, he tells you, he reminded them of what Jesus had said and done, and he led them into all truth. Now, to be reminded of something, you had to be there, hadn't you? To be reminded, you had to have been there to be reminded of what had happened. Well, they were there, and they were reminded of all the stuff Jesus had said and done. So he doesn't remind you the way he reminded them. But he does remind you of what you've read, they said. He reminds you of the stuff you've been taught. He brings it to your memory. The same spirit that brought them the memory of all that Jesus said and done and gave us the Bible is the same spirit that works in us to bring to our attention even bits of the Bible that we don't even remember consciously, that are buried deep in our subconscious at moments of crisis. He brings these to our memory and he applies them. He applies them to our hearts and our lives. So the Holy Spirit no longer reveals new truth, but he does illumine true truth. He leads us to know the same risen Savior. He reveals to us the same Father. He illumines the truth. He opens our minds and hearts to embrace and enjoy it. He takes the complete and final and sufficient objective testimony of the apostles and he makes it effective. He brings it home to my heart in the subjectivities of my feelings, my emotions, my heart. He makes it real to me. It moves me. The Spirit of God does that and does that in the lives of believers. John Owen put it like this, the Spirit reveals to the souls of sinners the God, the good things of the covenant of grace which the Father has provided and the Son purchased. 
He shows us mercy, grace, forgiveness, righteousness, acceptance with God. He makes them know these things for their own good. Know them as originally the things of the Father, prepared from eternity in His love and goodwill, as purchased for them by Christ, and laid up in store in the covenant of grace for their use. Then is Christ magnified and glorified in their hearts. Then they know, they know subjectively what a Savior and Redeemer He is. So we pray, don't we? We must pray that the Spirit would breathe upon us as just as He once breathed out the Scriptures. The Bible says that. The Spirit breathed out the Word of God. We want the Spirit to breathe into our hearts that the breathed out Word would speak powerfully into our hearts by the Spirit. We must never separate the Word and prayer. So we believe in the Holy Spirit active among us, not in giving us new truth, but in applying and making effective in us the truth that God has given. So I suppose, talking about the church's teaching, I can ask myself whether, how I come to this. Do I come in faith? Do I believe that God will speak to me through what is being said? Do I believe that? Do I believe I'm listening to a living voice speaking the very Word of God to me? There are some people in the Bible who didn't. Hebrews 4 talks about those. The message they heard was, was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Well, do, are you combining it with faith? Do you believe God will speak to you? Do you come to it with humility? Or do you pit your intellect or your will against what God is saying? If you do that, you'll be the loser. There are some things we won't let God talk to us about. And there are some people we will not let God talk to us through. That's why James says, humbly accept the word planted in you. And thirdly, do you come with a, a determination to obey? Not merely listening to the word, but being doers also. So whenever we think of the teaching of the word of God, let's come in the spirit of a, of a lovely hymn that friends of mine, uh, Keith and Kirsten Getty have written a hymn that's a prayer. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us. Shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of faith and our deeds uh, of love. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Well, there's the teaching. And then, there's, secondly, there's the fellowship. I'm going to expand on this, I think, uh, this idea of fellowship later in some other study. But, but this evening, I just want to mention the fellowship as it's used here in verse 42. And I, I think here it's used in its most general sense. The word fellowship is used in the book of Acts three times. It's associated with the apostles' ministry of witness and the supporting signs of that witness. Five times it's used in reference to the impact of the Spirit's work on those outside the church. In other words, the fellowship was a priority for the church, but it had an impact, the fellowship had an impact on people looking on at the church from the outside. Now, no word in the Bible, I suppose, is more abused than the word fellowship. I remember 
being in a church at which the person giving the announcements every week would invariably invite people to come to the hall afterwards and have fellowship over a cup of tea. I always imagined people kind of floating over cups of tea. That was the mental image that was, uh, that was stirred in my mind just because I, I kind of weird, really. Uh, and then, of course, there's Fellowship Hall. We've got one upstairs here. We've, I've had a Fellowship Hall in every church I've been in, and the word fellowship's applied to a room. But, of course, fellowship's much deeper than that. It's a reference, and, and I, as I say, I will spend more time on this on another occasion, but, but uh, it, it focuses on a shared life and a commitment to other people, involving a partnership. Verse 44 defines it as the believers had everything in common. There was giving and receiving. We know that later there was... Uh, I think it's uh, one of the reformers who, who thinks that here this refers to the, to, the, to the actual giving of the congregation. It may Here Luke uses the definite article, and therefore I think it's a summary statement. It's a broad categorization of what the early Christians did. They were together. They shared together. They had life together. They had a common bond together. They were there when the Word was taught. They shared that together. There's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That was the message of Pentecost, from the, the, the confusion of Babel to the unification, the gathering, the regathering of all the scattered exiles from the ends of the earth into one people of God. Fellowship. And it was a multicultural, multiracial fellowship as well. There was nothing... There is nothing further removed from some of the church planting efforts that people do nowadays that are very focused on one demographic. The early church, this church, was drawing together people from all around the then known world, people from all kinds of ethnic backgrounds, different ages and stages, all brought. There were, there were Aramaic speakers and Greek speakers. There were culturally Jewish and culturally Gentile, slaves and free, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, old, young all brought together, not in some monochrome form, but in a multifaceted fellowship. When the world sees that, you see, it sees genuine Christianity. It sees genuine Christianity, the fellowship. We'll come back to that some other time. Then thirdly, there's the supper. I think this is most likely to be the reference to the bread, the breaking of the bread, literally, in the Greek in verse 42. And I think it's more likely, as I said, a reference to the Lord's Supper. Later on, there's a, a reference to breaking bread in verse 46, but you'll notice there that that is in reference to generally eating, eating meals in homes, because it's further defined in verse 46. They were breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous heart. I think that's just general food, normal stuff. But here, in this summary statement, I think it's a reference to the breaking of bread where the Lord Jesus, in Luke's gospel, the Lord Jesus revealed himself to his two downcast disciples at Emmaus by breaking the bread. And this supper, we're going to celebrate that in just a moment here. They met regularly for food, but the breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup had been invested by the risen Lord, by the, the Lord, with special significance as signs of his sacrificial death as the servant of the Lord, poured out for many, as Isaiah says. 
the bread and the cup celebrate and commemorate the establishment of the new covenant. There's echoes in the language that is used of this supper of Exodus chapter 24 where there was a new meal, a new covenant meal at Sinai eaten in the very presence of God. It's an amazing, it's an amazing description in Exodus 24 when Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. And that's what's happening in the upper room. The disciples are there. The Lord Jesus is there. They behold God, and they eat and drink. They are seeing God in the flesh, and eating and drinking in the presence of God. The supper is an exalted meal. It's a fellowship in the blood of Christ. The slain sacrifice whose blood seals the covenant bond. The risen Lord who hosts the meal, who offers the cup, who welcomes the supper guests to table fellowship with himself. Why is the supper so significant? Because it was instituted by Jesus on the occasion of the Passover meal. And when you read the story, you see the intentionality of the Lord as he measures his words and ties his actions to the cup of thanksgiving. He uses ordinary bread and ordinary wine and relates them specifically to his death as a sacrifice for sins. The Passover meal was the start and foundation of the covenant God established with Israel in the desert. For since the lamb had been slaughtered and its bloodshed sprinkled on the altar, the rite of Passover was served first served as a rite of atonement, and then they had this sacrificial meal to signify God's fellowship with his people. Well, now Jesus is our Passover lamb. He died in our place. The breaking of bread is now our sacrificial meal. The sacrifice has happened. We now have the sacrificial meal. And the Bible is full of it. This is my body given for you, says Luke. This is my body which is for you, says Paul. When he distributes the cup, he calls it, my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin, says Matthew. My blood of the covenant poured out for many, says Mark. The new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you, says Luke. The cup is the new covenant in my blood, says Paul. In other words, the exact form of words isn't required. But the thought of the words is the establishment of a new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, the basis of a new relationship with God. That's what the supper represents. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. God in the flesh, standing, welcoming sinners to a table on which are the elements that point to his death for us. And what does he say to us when we come to this table? He says, take eat, drink from it, all of you. It not only points to the significance of the past, what Jesus has done, but it puts into your hands, into your mouth, into your senses, before your eyes, the salvation that he offers you. Because he treats you as a whole person. You're not just a spirit, you're a spirit inhabiting a body. You were made body and spirit. And the gospel is not just so that your soul might be saved. 
He's putting his stake not only on your soul being saved, but on your body being saved, raised, transformed. And so the gospel comes to us by word of promise and by bread and wine. You embrace it in your heart by faith, and you seal and sign that embrace by faith by taking the elements that are held out to you by the Lord Jesus as he invites you to his table. There's the supper, and lastly there are the prayers. The prayers, usually probably the temple prayers, joining as they would with the rest of Israel to offer praise and prayer in the temple. And their prayers and devotion was more than just traditional Jewish piety, because the outpouring of the Spirit is linked to prayer in the Old Testament. The outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost marked out the people of Jesus as the new temple. They were the new sanctuary. They were now, we are now, a house of prayer for all the nations. All the nations are invited. All the nations may come in. All the nations may share with us in the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the nations may sit with us at the table. All the nations may have a relationship with us by their relationship with the Lord Jesus. So the prayers becomes central to the life of their, of their experience as the people of God. So when they're under opposition, they're imprisoned, the authorities are after them, what do they do? They gather together and they pray. And as a result of their prayer, what happens? They're emboldened to go out into the streets of Jerusalem where the opposition is and to speak the word of God more boldly. Churches that are really serious about being like that first group of people on the day of Pentecost, unique as it was, will be churches marked by teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. You want a template? That's it. And the effect of all of this, we're told, was that everyone was filled with awe. Back then, they were conscious, you see, that God was at work, that they were witnesses of the final drama, that they were indeed participants in the final drama of redemption. Pentecost, the final phase of Jesus' first coming. And now there is nothing left to happen but Jesus to come again. And he's promised, you see, that he will not drink of the fruit of the vine till we all get home and sit with him at his table at the marriage feast of the Lamb. He says to his people, you drink in remembrance of me. You drink in anticipation of that day. I'll hold myself till every one of you's home. And then we'll party together. Father, we thank you that you've given us in your word a sure word of prophecy. We thank you for the privilege of belonging to the people of God. We thank you now that we're able to move seamlessly from the word spoken to the word visible.
in which all that you have promised to us is signed and sealed in bread and wine. We pray that as we eat and drink this evening, our hearts would be strangely warmed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.